You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Wendy Salkin. Wendy is a PhD candidate in the Department of Philosophy at Harvard University. In 2018, she would join the faculty at San Francisco State University as an assistant professor in philosophy. Our primary research interest is in social and political philosophy, moral philosophy, black political thought, and philosophy of law. She holds a JD from Stanford Law School and has also served as a law clerk and legal advisor. In this episode, we talk about what is informal representation, their duties and powers, the agency involved, the boys and coats, law schooling PhD programs, and so much more. Hello, Wendy, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? Hi, Maisha. I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for coming on. Wendy, tell us, how did you get interested in philosophy? You know, I think there's sort of like a few answers to this question. So I'm going to tell you the first philosophy book I ever got was one that I got when I was in sixth grade. So my dad would take my sister and me to this book, this bookstore, Walmrath in Hackensack. And that's where I grew up in Hackensack, New Jersey. And so we'd go and every once in a while we'd get a new book if we wanted one. And so I was in like sixth grade, I think. And I used to, you know, I'd usually get like novels or like books of poetry, but I got Plato's Republic. And so that was like the first book of poetry, the first book of philosophy I ever had. And it was really hard to read. And, but I think that was like my first taste of philosophy. And then when I was in high school, I and a few friends, Kasin and Mary, and, and I would go and meet with this teacher at school, Dr. Curtis, on Wednesdays from three to six in like a, like a back room in the basement of the high school. That was like the space we could find to do our little philosophy reading group. And we would read mostly like pre-Socratics and Plato and Aristotle. And at some point, I finally convinced them that we had to read Nietzsche. (laughs) So that was the second time. And then like the third way I got into philosophy was my sophomore year of college. I was shut out of a British literature course. So at the time, I thought I was going to be a poet. And so I was taking a bunch of English literature courses. And I got signed up for a course, but it wasn't actually taking place. So instead, I signed up for logic and philosophical perspectives on feminism and gender. And so I like found the classes really challenging and frustrating and exciting. And I really like that was the point at which I figured out, like, I love the way philosophers ask questions about the world. And that was the point at which I felt like, yeah, this is this is the thing I want to think about a lot of the time. So your your current project is in political philosophy, particularly on representation. And I'm wondering if you can tell us what is the difference between formal and informal representation and how did you become interested in the latter? Okay. Yeah. So I think that there are these like key differences between formal and informal representation. You know, formal representation is what I take it where, you know, many of us are familiar with our congresspersons, our paradigmatic examples of formal representatives, right? They're people who speak for us, express what they take our interest to be in these fora where we can't be. They're elected or they're selected as part of these formal or corporately organized selection procedures for senators, for instance, by election, or they might be selected for us in other ways, appointment by someone else we did elect. This is what happens often in judicial contexts. I also include among formal representatives, people who are elected or selected 
in these ways to serve as heads of non-governmental organizations or advocacy groups like the ACLU or the NAACP. They're formal representatives of people who are members of those organizations. By contrast, the informal representative is someone who speaks for me or you or both of us or a whole group of us, even though they weren't elected or selected in that way to do so. So like paradigmatic examples of this include celebrities, others are public figures like Malala or Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. And depending on whether you think I have it right, I, I happen to think it can be just about anyone who's taken by an audience to speak or act for some group in a, in a politically salient context. And how did you get interested in informal representation? Is there a lot of literature and political science and political theory and political philosophy about the latter? I mean, we hear a lot about formal representation, but how did you get interested in the latter? Yeah, so I think, you know, I think that there are, there's not a lot in philosophy on this. There are a few key texts that touch on it. There are political theorists who think about this, and I think in political science, there's there's a lot of work on this, but... I don't know that we've put our sort of like, you know, our philosophical tools to work on this project. But I will say that, like, I first became interested in it by reading this paper by Linda Alcoff, who is this fantastic philosopher at CUNY. So the paper is called The Problem of Speaking for Others. And I read it in my my first year of graduate school. And I thought, like, yeah, that is a problem. How can people justifiably or legitimately do that? You know, speak in the voice of another person. And then I was the sort of this idea was bouncing around in my head and I met with Tommy Shelby for the first time and he encouraged me to do two things. One was to sort of pursue this question as a philosophical question. And the second was to read W.E.B. Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk, which is one of the most important philosophical texts I've, I've read. It's, it's really shaped what I think philosophy can look like and like what sorts of questions count as philosophical questions. And in that book, the third chapter is called Of Mr. Booker T. Washington and Others, right? Yeah. And that's probably one of my favorite chapters in the Souls of Black Book. I mean, he throws major <laughs> shade at Booker T., but go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, so, it's such a good <laughs> it's such a good chapter. And but it's like it's interesting because he's he is right. He is pointing out Booker T. Washington, but he's also using him as like an example of a phenomenon. Right. He's using he's raising our like he's giving our our attention toward this phenomenon, you know, people speaking for other people. And in Du Bois's case, he's concerned about Booker T. Washington speaking for black Americans. But his points can be generalized. Right. He's worried about how people come into this position and the sorts of responsibilities that somebody has once they're in that position. And and then I, you know, from there, I realized, look, this is a really ubiquitous phenomenon. And I think even more so than most scholars take it to be right. It's it's like and, and so for me, it's like this, you know, that saying, you know, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. Like I now just see informal representation everywhere in our contemporary interpersonal and political relationships. Like I think it's all over the place. And I don't think we quite know how to think about it. Yeah, you, you, well, you already know my, my current project as far as being concerned about reporters asking black mm-hmm. victims of, of violence, racial violence, police brutality to forgive. And, and while they're in that particular space, in some ways, I think the reporter take the victim to be representing black people. <laughs> and at least at some sense, they also feel that that burden, too. So I want you to describe for us a little bit more in detail the phenomenon of informal representation and tell us what do you think is promising side of it? Right. I think. So this question is like, what what is informal representation good for? What could it be good for? Right. So I think one of the thing it's good for one of the same things formal representation is good for. Right. Ensuring that a person or a group's voice is heard, even if they're not in the room. So so Iris Young has this great thing she says about representation. Right. She says representation is necessary because the web of modern social life often ties the actions of some people and institutions in one place to consequences in many other places and institutions, right? And she makes this point, like, 
we can't all be present at all the decisions or like in all the decision-making bodies whose actions affect our lives, right? Um, and so she says, look, like even when we're not there, we would hope that somebody would say what we want or, you know, represent our perspectives to, to the issue form, whatever that issue form is. And I, and I think there's something really, really crucial to that, right? And, it's, and I think it's more than, it's not just whether we can be present, it's whether we're going to be invited to speak, it's whether we know how to say for ourselves what we would, what we want if we were invited to speak or what, you know, what our perspective is. And so I think informal representation is, it can be beneficial because it allows for like efficiency and communicating ideas to a broad public or in private meetings. It can allow for coalition building and it can allow this like one individual, the representative to crystallize ideas from people who, you know, you know, Du Bois's idea, like sometimes people only at first dimly perceive what they might want or value or prefer or know what their options are. And so I think a representative can serve that role of trying to crystallize those, those ideas that we can't quite see as our, you know, as our own yet. So, so there has to be a flip side to this. So yeah. what do you take to be problematic about informal representation? Oh, so many things. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, you're right. Like anytime, right, there's, we've talked about like the promise of this practice, but yeah, there, there's so many perils. A representative can like harm a group, even wrong a represented group, right? So they can do things like knowingly or unknowingly misinform or mislead an audience about what a group's expressed interests are. I mean, especially, you know, so in the case you're talking about in your work about when a journalist is like taking someone to be speaking for a community, someone might not realize that that's what's being done to them. And so they might speak very, very particularly about the situation as they see it, but it's translated by the journalist or by the audience as something that they are saying on behalf of the community. And that statement might not be true for all of the members of the community. In addition, it could be that the representative makes hide, keeps the group hidden from view or a, a the group, right? So if the group at issue is a marginalized group, it can be the case that an informal representative wittingly or unwittingly contributes to a group's further marginalization. And so I think there's like this, this tension at the heart of that relationship between the informal representative and the represented group, even if the representation is very badly needed, even if it's, you know, done in good faith. So I'll elaborate on the, on the, on the latter point where you say they can contribute to, to their, their marginalization. How, how so? Right. Can you provide an example if possible? Think about a case where a particular representative is saying that, look, what the group wants. So I've written a little bit about like the Montgomery bus boycotts as, as an example. So you might think, look, so King is speaking for Mont Montgomery, black Montgomerians about this issue of the of exclusion from the means of public transport disrespect that's faced, right? And, and doing this sort of as a microcosm for many issues that were being faced by Black Montgomerians. But you might think focusing attention on one issue, say the bus boycott or some other particular issue that affects one member of a community or one set of members from a community can occlude other things. It can place the focus in one, on one set of issues, right? And so you might think, oh, well, Black Montgomerians had a huge set of needs that that required um, that required focus, and if you place focus on one particular area, you can you can draw attention away from other considerations. So that's the kind of that's the kind of idea. What would you say to the objection, as far as the form of representation goes, about that it, it it has a lack of agency, right? So, for example, uh, you suggest that if someone is taken to be a representative, right? So it's not as if I sign up for it. It's not even if I if I proclaim that I am, but yet do not have the permission of the people, right? So if a, if a reporter or if anyone takes me to be a representative of a black folk, right, or, or black women, but I didn't sign up for that, 
Right. Do you, do you still want to suggest that I'm still an informal representative? And do I like agency as we go as we continue down that process? Well, I think people may. So I think it's not. So let me say, let me frame it this way. I think it's not unique that people make demands of us, right? So sometimes quite unreasonably, sometimes quite reasonably that like we're, we spend so much of our time in the world being responding to demands of us that we comport ourselves in certain ways that we respond to you know, respond to others. People make these demands of us. This is, I think, just one type of way that a person can be asked to, to respond to a demand. Now, one response is no, right? So I, so sometimes the response can be, no, I, I reject this role. Um, I think in the case, so in the case of informal representation, sometimes I, I want to say, well, look, you might have a reason, really good reasons to remain in the role, even if you didn't want to be in it, because you stand in relationships of solidarity to a group, or you have a duty of mutual aid to a group in virtue of which you you have independent reasons, right? So you didn't want to be called upon to serve in this role, but I wouldn't say that it diminishes one's agential capacity, right? There, there, you, you, you get to respond in the way that you want to, but you might have duties with respect to the group that would suggest that you ought to take up the role even if you didn't want it, right? Or if it's really hard to shake the role, there are going to be questions about just like how you, you know, how it would be best to serve in it. So before we get to duties, let's talk a little bit about power. So you talked yeah. about the promising side of informal representation, but you also say that there are normative and political powers that the informal representative can have with respect to the representative. What are, what are these powers? Yeah, right. So these, these are features that are intrinsic to the relationship between the representative and the represented. I, I frame them as normative and political powers that the informal representative has with respect to the represented, in virtue of which they're specially situated to affect the represented group and its members' circumstances, right? And I think, look, there's a wide range of these powers, some of which come up in some contexts, others of which come up in, in others. And so I'll just like tell you about a few that I've thought about, uh, you know, thought about a lot. I think that informal representatives tend to have at least some of these powers, right? And I think that it's in virtue of having these powers with respect to the represented, that the representative representatives end up having corresponding duties to the represented. So, so there's like the power to create epistemic entitlements in an audience, right? So audience members might come to be entitled to, to have certain conclusions about the represented group or its members based solely or partly on the representative statements or actions about that group. And these entitlements might make it the case that the audience members don't need to consult members of the group directly on matters about which the representative has spoken. They might reasonably assume that the representative statements or actions are properly ascribable to the group, right? And because that's so, you might think, well, this answers the question about, like, why should somebody serve as a representative in a certain way? Because it turns out that an audience might take your views to be, to be true of a whole bunch of different people. It might also be the case that the informal representative has the power to make promises or give assurances on the group's behalf. We can imagine a case where the representative says to an audience, look, if you agree to change this policy in the way I'm proposing, I can assure you that the people I'm representing will be on board, right? And so it's not that the representative quite has the power to bind the group, right? So if it turns out that the group isn't on board or doesn't go along with the proposal, its members can't be said to have done something wrong. It's not that like the group or its members could be accountable for breaching, but the representative can give this kind of assurance where it's not merely like a prediction about what the group or its members are likely to do. The representative won't be open to criticism for having provided the assurance and the group members might be criticizable for not going along with the offer, even if they didn't 
wrong anyone by not having done so. Uh, similarly, the informal representative might have the power to determine or change a group's negotiating position by offering commitments or concessions on the group member's behalf. And then I think there's this other really interesting power, which is the power of group formation, right? So maybe a, 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 you know, a would-be informal representative can bring a group into being or help people realize that there is already a group there by speaking about the values or interests or preferences of some individuals in a certain way, right? So give, give us an example yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so you might think, there's this group, you know, there's an individual, there's a plurality of individuals, right? All of them have in common that they are working for very low wages, right? And somebody comes along and says, hey, you know, your people who are sharing, all of you, all of you folks have in common that your work, you're not being paid enough for your work. And, you know, you're, you're, you're subject to these common sets of social forces, the boss is never, you know, never going to raise your wages. You guys have something in common in virtue of which you should think about yourselves as a group. You should think about yourselves as, you know, as workers, right? As people who should be able to form unions, right? So I think once the representative does this, the ind those individuals might come to feel themselves bound together in a way that creates greater social cohesion than the individuals might otherwise have had without the representative's interve interventions. Or it could be that the representative instead like creates the group by communicating in that same way to an audience, right? So that's, that's what I have in mind by that. So, so you, so you, so you note that that given these powers, right, these normative political powers, that the informal representative has a duty to the representative. Tell us more about about this duty. Right. So, I think that it's like in virtue of having or being in a position to gain one of the types of powers that I just described that the representative has responsibilities to the represented. I think it's not just one duty, but a few different types of. Duties. Right. The, the background and, and so the background aim that these duties serve is, is this one. It's to promote social equality for the represented group or its members, both in their relationship to the representative themselves and in the represented group's relationship to the society that is, for instance, marginalizing or oppressing them. And so that's like the target or aim. And so I propose that with this aim in mind, there are two sets of duties, what I call democracy within duties and justice without duties that should guide the informal representative in their actions. The, the duties I refer to as these justice without duties, they concern what guides the representative when they're in the process of speaking or acting for the represented to the audience or the outward facing responsibilities, right? It concerns the norms that ought to guide the representative, the, the representative to in, in his or her relationship to the audience. So one duty the informal representative has in representing the group is to, pr to promote and not or not obstructs the promotion of the group's circumstances so that the group members will come to have equal status with other members of society. And so if I want to know, well, as a representative, what what should I do? The kinds of questions I might ask myself to know what my justice without duties are, are, well, what should I say or do when I'm speaking to this particular audience? Or how should I say or do this when I'm representing before this audience? And should I even be the person to speak? So sometimes it could be that the justice without duties point towards stepping aside. Similarly, and so and so the other the other side of that is the democracy within duties. And those are the duties that are going to guide the representative in their immediate relationship to the represented. One way to think of this is as like the the inward looking duties, right? And so democracy within duties arise out of a commitment to promoting or maintaining a society of equals. And so if you want to do that, the informal representative should insofar as it's compatible with those justice without duties promote democracy where I conceive of that as like a set of social practices, conventions, norms, and rules within the representative's relationship to the represented group. And so how, how, how does that look? What does that look like? And so I think that 
for an informal representative to promote social equality in, in their immediate relationship to the represented group, they have to show the represented recognition respect. And I think that recognition respect is shown in representative contexts where by the informal representative promoting transparency, publicity, being open to the criticism of the represented and tolerating dissent. So, so a big criticism that Du Bois had of Booker T. Washington is that he was always trying to quash dissent, right? Any sort of dissent against the way that he approached representation, he would try to silence. Uh, not any, but but much of it. And so you might hear in that a type of a type of duty that Du Bois, you know, I follow Du Bois in thinking that a representative is going to have is, you know, being present for the dissent of those you speak for. So in some ways, I'm imagining, you know, the, the Booker T. Washington example is very clear to me. And it, it's more of the go back to the case, the ordinary citizen. Right. Whether that's a, a black victim or whatever the case may be. What would you say apply the duty to my You've thought a lot more about the victim, you know, the whoa, demands whoa, whoa. of the victim case than I have. Yeah, so yeah. I want to. So, I wanna so, so maybe, maybe I should. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, but, maybe I shouldn't say let, let's not use the, the black victim case. Let's just use I mean, particularly with marginalized groups, whether that is a woman. Right. You're in yeah. an interview and they take you to be speaking for women. Right. Which is not necessarily the case for majority groups. Right. But minority right. groups right, right. are usually taken to be take, representing their particular group. In that case of an ordinary citizen, not necessarily a celebrity or a famous uh, leader who still is an informal representative. In, in that particular case, in the case of the ordinary citizen, what is my duty? <laughs> I, well, I think there's like, right, I think that if so, if you know, so first of all, I limit it to cases where people know that they're being taken to speak for others. So I, I refer to these as like the unwilling representative and the unwitting representative. So if you're right. unwitting, if somebody's taking you to, right, in lots of cases, I'm sure that people take us to be speaking for other women, but we never find out that that's happening. So in that case, I think like no duties are in question, right? You can't be held accountable or like you can't be held to, you know, responsible in those cases. But like if you're on, so the case you're describing is someone's unwilling. And I want to point out like lots of times the people, the people who are taken to be representatives are willing, they want to be in these roles. So that's one, one thing to say is that often people want to be in the role of speaking brothers, but in the unwillingness case. So one thing is, is to say like, you ought to think about the effects of what you're saying for, for the group. Right. So I, I should think about it. I mean, it might be, like I've said, I think there are two questions here and I think it's, it's better to keep them separate. One is, did somebody wrong or harm me by taking me to be speaking for women or speaking for philosophers, right? And, and then it's on them. And then we can say, look, that audience wasn't acting, you know, epistemically virtuously in doing that. But now we're here. Now we're in this non-ideal space, right? Where it turns out that somebody's taking me to speak for women, right? And I want to get it right. Or like, I, I ought to want to get it right. And I want, I ought to try to think about, well, what would it, what is it going to look like if I say that women want X when what they really want is Y or something like that? Or if I try to reject the role when there's no one else who can speak, right? I think that it's important to think of this sort of a responsibility in line with lots of other responsibilities we have to, to our, our fellow citizens. It's not, it's not much different from lots of other duties we have to help out other people, to duties we owe to other people that we, we have, even though we haven't voluntarily taken them up. It's just responsibilities we have in virtue of living in community with others. I'm not sure if you, if you, if you have thought about this, Wendy, but as I'm, I'm listening, talking about the flip side, the theme of the flip side, I'm wondering if a person who takes a person to be an informal representative, for example, do they have any particular powers? And therefore, any duties in regard to that? 
Yeah. So I do, I have thought about this a little bit. I have this, this paper I'm working on called the virtuous audience where I'm trying, but like, no, it's, it's interesting. So I do think they have powers, right? So I, I certainly think that they have this power to, to take the, take someone as right. So taking someone as a representative is a power. That's the, that's the triggering condition for the whole set of questions we've been discussing. And, and I do think that like, because they have that power that duties arise out of that, right? There, there are ways of being a good listener. There are ways of being attuned to the fact that you can put somebody in this position, right? So in the case you're talking about between the, the journalist and the victim or between the journalist and any one of us who's taken by journalists to be speaking for some community, right? The, the journalist or whoever's asking the questions has to check themselves and say, hey, am I trying, am I, Am I putting on this person? Am I putting on this person a, a particular role that they didn't take up? Actually, I was listening to this. So Tanazi Coates j- just did an interview on on, and he was. I don't know. Do you want me to? Can I read to you this? Yes, please, please. Yeah. So he was. So this is brought brought to my attention by by a friend of mine. So he was being interviewed, talking about his new book, and he was saying. I don't mind people calling me to ask me about current events. I wish there was more space, though. There's an uncomfortable tradition in this dialogue of quote unquote race relations in this country where people are selected at various moments to be spokespeople for what right now is a community of 40 million people. Obviously, I write and I write for the public and I want my thoughts considered. I want my writing considered, but I didn't ask for a crown. And I think that's like that's crucial. Right. And and he goes on, he says. And that's kind of what has happened, honestly, to be straight with you, because with that comes assumptions about what you're saying and what supposed to do. You lose some of your freedoms as a writer. You lose your ability to be curious in public because you have a crown on now. You're supposed to have the answers. It's probably the most regrettable development personally for me out of the past eight years. So maybe my virtuous audience piece should be called, you know, wearing, wearing the crown, right? Because it's this idea of having that placed on you. And so I think like, I, I do, I do have, I do think that there's a duty to be a good listener, a good audience member to to realize, right? So one thing I want to do with this work is to try to bring to light that we're all doing this all the time, that we're all in these relationships of representativeness and being represented and putting people into the role of representatives. And I want to see how to ameliorate those tensions by thinking about what our responsibilities are. So Wendy, you also have a law degree from Stanford. You've also served as a law clerk, intern, extern, whatever that means. I have no idea. (laughs) Why did you decide to get a law degree in addition to a PhD in in philosophy? And I noticed that there's several programs that have the joint degree in this way. So I'm also wondering, what would you say to others who may be interested in doing the same? Thanks for that question. I've always I've always thought that like law and political philosophy have certain core common questions. So one thing I should say, too, is that so I spent a lot of time trying to avoid my interest in law because my parents are lawyers. And so I was like, I do not. Have, so I spent my time growing up, people <laughs> thinking like, you, you're, you're argumentative and you got a lot of views, you're going to be a lawyer. And I was like, I am not because my parents, you know, the, I was resisting that. So I ended up being a philosopher. <laughs> but, but like, I, as I sort of opened up and I tried to sort of move past that knee jerk reaction, I started to think law and political philosophy have these, these certain core common questions. Like, what's the nature of justice? What does it require of us? What do we owe to one another? And so like, I went to law school in part because I wanted to know how to think about the legal side of those questions. I wanted to see, and I wanted to see how it played out in action in court and 
how it played out in our in our legal relationships. And in addition to that, I started to think, you know, something something else that attracted me to law was that I, I've often had this sort of hunch that there's like a lot of similarity between philosophical reasoning and legal reasoning. Philosophers, of course, aren't really beholden to precedence in the way that lawyers are, though we might think that there are certain tendencies in philosophy to hold on to certain conceptual precedents in a certain way, but I'll, but I'll, I'll put that aside, right? Um, <laughs> but the, the aim in both cases, right, is clear, straightforward argument. You start out with your premises or your set of facts, or your legal principles, and you kind of let your reader or your audience, whether they're students or colleagues or a judge or a jury, know how you're thinking about these things. And you, and you think they should think about these things in one way or another. So I was also strongly attracted to the methodology of legal reasoning. And, I, and I'm really glad that I did it, right? So my experiences in law school, not just the coursework, but clerking on the 11th Circuit and on the Iran-U.S. Claims Tribunal and then externing with public defenders and being part of the Stanford International Human Rights and Conflict Resolution Clinic, they all helped me understand how different areas of public and private discourse depend on the expertise and knowledge and judgment of well-trained lawyers and judges and advocates. To, to what I would say to people who have interests in both, I think for people who have interest in both philosophy and law, they can be well served, well served by pursuing both courses of study. And I'd advise people who are interested in doing both to think about what, what in particular draws you to that role, right? What is it that lights your fire in philosophy? What is it that you think you want to know about law? Do you think you want to practice law? Do you think you want to write about law? And, and it's okay to not have answers to these questions, right? So, but put them before yourself. I, I also think like if you live near a law school See if someone in the admissions office or a professor there or even a student there can tell you what it's like and, and what you can expect. Because I think I knew a lot more about what philosophy graduate study was going to be like from my undergraduate experience of studying philosophy. Right. I knew what law school was going to be like, right? Because we don't have, we generally don't have undergraduate studies of law in the United States. And so you got to go and ask or ask to sit in on a class. Oh, but the last thing I want to say about, or one thing I really want to say about this is look for scholarships and fellowships and ways of funding your law school education. A lot of schools offer financial packages for students who pursue these GDs and PhDs as parts of joint programs. There are also like independent funds for students to fund law school. There aren't usually these graduate stipends for law school in the way there are for a doctoral program. So I want, I, I, I often advise people to like know what you're getting into when you're pursuing a law, a law degree. Okay. When do you are dedicated runner? You're currently training for a marathon and you make me feel bad about being a human being every day because I'm not running with okay. you. Are we going to go running? Are no. running soon? We're, we're, we're going to go running soon. I've been telling you that for the last 365 days. I'm but here, so here's, excited about it. Here's my, here's, and you've been excited for 365 days. And Thank you for be, keeping, keeping long, the faith. I will always be excited about it as long as it takes. <laughs> Listen, I've been struggling here. So I want you, I want you to help me out here. What, what would you say is one of the difficulties and benefits of having an active lifestyle? as an academic, and also the challenges, and how can we break through those challenges? Because I think for academics, we get so focused on our work, being at the desk, being in the classroom, that we that often comes at the neglect of our bodies and being kind of active. So so tell us the difficulties, the benefits, so I can get some inspiration here. Okay, okay, <laughs> and good. And finally yeah, start yeah. running with you. And so, I'm, uh, you know, um, on the theme of flip sides, I'm going to start with the benefits, and then I'll move on to the difficulties, because I think we should, I think we should start, approach this positively first, right? So, okay. <laughs> I like I couldn't think if I didn't move, right? Like I think living an active lifestyle and where that for me, that means running and biking and yoga, but it means different things to different people. It helps me think more clearly. If I'm really stuck trying to figure out a part of an argument I'm working on or just been sitting at the desk too long, like I go out for a run or for a bike ride and I try to loosen up. I try to think, think it through from a new angle. Actually, I have this like dictation software on my phone so that if I have an idea while I'm out running on a long run, I can record it rather than You're stop so efficient. Fight. Hashtag efficiency. <laughs> so like 
So I think like other runners out on the trail think I look silly when I'm talking to myself like this, but it, but it's helped me a lot. So let me look silly. But the difficulties look. So one thing is time, right? Writing takes time. Reading takes time and running or running a lot takes time. So I think one difficulty is trying to pursue various commitments all at once, like being able to do both, right? Is it, it can be hard. And in addition to that, there's this other challenge. And I wouldn't say it's a difficulty necessarily, though sometimes it feels like one is like being patient with myself. Right. So I often, so similar, you know, just as I'm, I'm sure you've experienced, but I often experience, I often want to know what the end of an argument looks like from the beginning, but it's, but it's not always. And it, in fact, it's rarely possible to do that, at least for me. Right. I need to write to know where I'm going. And so sometimes I just need to keep writing until I sort it out. And I think similarly, I think having like an active lifestyle requires patience. So some days I run a lot slower than I'd like. And other days, like I have to rest and let an injury heal even before, even though it's nice out and I'm chomping at the bit to like hit the road. So I think both being an academic and being someone with an active lifestyle requires a lot of patience, knowing when to slow down and when to rest. So for those who've been procrastinating, you know, you, you know, this is, and this is, this weird. I mean, I'm, how I want this to be a confession of sorts, but you know, I'm, pre- I'm pretty of an active individual. But as soon as I moved to Cambridge, it's like it sucked, like Harvard just sucked all the like energy out of me to, to, to do some work. So for cold those of here. us, it is cold yeah, I'm a blame. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm blaming on the weather. I'm blaming on anything but myself. Okay, <laughs> so for those who have been procrastinating that want to get over the hurdle, in addition to the benefits, give us that that thing that, like you say, after listening to this podcast, you know what? I'm gonna read this book and write this argument, but I'm gonna go out and do some yoga. What is what is that? Give us that thing, Wendy. Here's that thing. So a good playlist, whether it be give yourself the thing whatever you want to listen to. So obviously the unmute podcast is something that you want to go out and listen to when you're hitting the road or like, (laughs) like, or a book that you've really wanted to like read, but you know, like a novel you really want us to read, but you haven't had time to, you can go and listen to it while you're running or when you hit the elliptical or whatever, or a pop, like a playlist. I found that like, once I started making these playlists, so I, I listened to playlists for writing and then also for, also for running. And once you start making that playlist, you can kind of like envision yourself out on the road listening to this. Right. And so I think that like, that's really changed my approach to it where it's just this, like, it's this immersive experience where I'm like, oh, there's going to be this time at noon tomorrow that like, after I've, after we've been in writing group together, right. I go out and I go for a run for an hour and I get to listen to all these new songs I haven't heard before. So it's like, I can't tell you what the, like, what the inspiration is, but I can tell you like, give yourself give yourself something to look forward to and enjoy about the run or, or with yoga, I think like you just like find a buddy. So for things like yoga or running, I think also finding I'm, I'm all about accountability groups and hanging out with other people when you're writing or running or reading. So find somebody else that you want to go running with. Maisha, will you go running with me? (laughs) See, And then, and then you say yes. Yes. And and then we plan it. And now all all of your readers, your, your listenership will know. Okay. And I'd be held accountable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for this conversation and also keeping me accountable <laughs> on recorded, recorded radio. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you so much for coming I do on. Too. Thank you so much, Maisha. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.